0: Hi everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. And with me is a rising star in the Lightfoot administration, Marisa Navarro, the housing commissioner. Welcome. Thank you. Fran. So tell us a little bit about your background. I know that in reading your LinkedIn profile that you went to the University of Michigan and the University of Chicago, which happens to be the same places that Lori Lightfoot went. Right. Did you know her then? I assume you're younger than she is, right? She was
1: ahead of me in both in both places. Did you yes. know of her even? No, um, I began to know of her actually through some work that I did at Metropolitan Planning Council, where we were working on a roadmap for uh, racial equity in the Chicago region. And um, the now mayor was part of an advisory group for us on public safety because of her role then with the police board. So that's where I began to get to know her. And just as we were releasing our roadmap in May of 2018 was when she announced her candidacy. And did you immediately sign on to her campaign? Did you say, wow, this will be great? I had a lot of interest in what I heard from her uh, as being very different and new uh, compared to what I had heard from other candidates and other mayors in the past. So um, I did spend some time on, on my own time working on her housing platform. Even before Rahm Emanuel dropped out? Yes.
0: Okay. And then at the Metropolitan Planning Council, you oversaw the cost of segregation. A big study that talked about the 4.4 billion dollar cost of segregation in Chicago. Talk a little bit about that, and what about that study you bring to this job? Sure.
1: Uh, Yeah, that was a you know many many year effort, and it really began with a desire on our part to figure out how do we talk about segregation in in a way that makes us understand that it impacts everyone in our region. I think that I went into this with a feeling that, you know, we talk about segregation incorrectly all the time. We talk about it as if it's synonymous with black and brown spaces only and with low-income spaces only. And that leaves out all of the spaces across our region that are majority white. And it allows for people who live in those spaces to feel that they're not part of a segregated space and that they therefore don't need to be part of the solution. So what we really wanted to do was figure out how do we talk about how this impacts all of us and we set out to do that in partnership with the Urban Institute and um, you know, and we found a great deal of impact across both income, but also lost lives and lost educational potential. Then what we did with that was to say, okay, now that we know more about how segregation impacts us, what do we do about it? What do we do differently? And that's what led into our following report, which became kind of a roadmap for how to become a more racially equitable region. Okay.
0: So you, what lessons do you take? What things will you do that you're now in a position to
1: execute? Well, I'll tell you, you know, a really interesting part of this process. We really set this up as a process of inquiry, meaning we wanted to ask two questions. Does segregation cost all of us? And if so, what do we do about it? And so we answered the first one and going into the second question, the what do we do about it? uh, I think it it could have been easy to say what we're going to do is write a report on how to do integration better. That's what, that's a logical next step, right? But instead, we really tried to sit back and ask and surround ourselves with a diverse group of advisors and say, what do we need to hear about your realities and what needs to change? And what I learned through that process really clearly by listening to people of color was integration is not the problem I'm focused on solving. The pro- focus that the problem I'm focused on solving is racism. And if you solve for that, then, yes, we will likely create more diverse, integrated, inclusive spaces, but that's not our that's not our first goal. Our first goal is to create equitable spaces in an equitable city. So that's really what I learned from that process, and that's really how we then focused. And then we went to places like Seattle to learn about how they, in their city and county government, have really embraced racial equity um, in the way that they make decisions and so on. So, That became then part of our roadmap to say, how can government, city government, county government and beyond really embrace these principles, along with nonprofits and foundations in the private sector, too? So now you're the housing commissioner and
0: we have a huge problem in this city. We have a shortage of affordable housing that's probably 180,000 units or something like that, according to the mayor's transition report. What are we going to do about this problem? Because
1: it's costing the city population, isn't it? Well, it's it's costing lots of things, right? Um, We know, so the Institute for Housing Studies at DePaul puts the number at 120,000 unit gap, um, if you look at the city only. 180 was, was the oh, county. I see. Okay. If you look at the city only, it's 120,000, right? And one of the things that um, we did when I first came in about two months ago was to say, all right, we know that number, but we don't know a lot more than that. And we need to understand better what that actually means. Low income is not just a monolithic category, right? So we dug a little deeper to say, Uh, What's the actual distribution of need? And what we found was that even when you're looking at the low-income population as a whole, nearly 70% of that population is at the very lowest end of the spectrum, meaning 30% of the area median income or about $25,000 for a family of four. So most of our low-income renters are making the lowest end of, of that category. Yet our tools, like the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is federal and is our city's single biggest source, are set for twice that. They're set for rents that are affordable to people making 50,000, or households making $50,000 a year. So we have a major mismatch. And that was an important thing to understand because then that changes how we set up our tools differently. Um, and so you know you saw that in the recent release of our Qualified Allocation Plan. Which you changed the guidelines for people to apply for low income federal housing tax credits. That's right. So it's the city's uh, version of a request for proposals using federal federally allocated tax credits. And so coming in the door two months ago, I knew this was something we had to get out the door um, this summer. And So the two things that we really then focused in on, coming in the door, knowing the mayor's vision, right, was focused on equity, transparency, accountability. So how does that get reflected in a document like this, right? So we focused on two things, how to make this as transparent as possible and how to use data to drive the criteria that we set. So here's how we did both of those things, right? So the, um, the transparency part comes in for the first time, we're actually really walking people through how much money we have, um, both in the credits, but also the other sources that we um, need to use to put to make deals work, how we intend to um, provide them, right? What is our criteria? If we're looking at, at developments in high income areas, in gentrifying areas, in lower income areas? What are the things that we expect to see differently based on the different needs of those communities? Um, and, and we're being clear with people, uh, with the development community, that this is a request that they're going to get every two years so that they can plan accordingly. In the past, it was you know not a, not a clear sense of when this opportunity would come up again.
0: Now, the mayor did c- uh, a campaign on a promise to raise the real estate transaction tax to build more affordable housing, to reduce homelessness. Now she has a billion plus shortfall and she's got to use that money for the gap. So where is the resource that you're going to get to,
1: to, attr- to try to address this problem, which is growing? Right. Um, you know, I can't stress enough that I share the concerns of, of the folks pushing for this. And in fact, in my previous work, one of the recommendations in the roadmap that we talked about was to use a real estate transfer tax for the first time to fund affordable housing and homelessness. So this is this is um, an issue I come to with with a lot of history on and a lot of passion for, um, and it's painful to me to be in the realities of our fiscal situation. So what I'll say is we're really clear on the commitment. Uh, to addressing homelessness, to providing more resources for affordable housing. But it's really early for us to figure out exactly how. Um, we're still getting our arms around the level of the fiscal challenge that we're
0: in. But is there an alternative source? For example, could you use the general obligation bond issue that the city uses to buy equipment, for example? Is there any higher need than this? Why couldn't we set aside some of that money for this purpose for affordable housing?
1: Yeah, I've, um, we've looked into lots and lots of things. I think the, the challenge with the bond um, issue is uh, we actually, we have um, revenue bonds that go unused each year because they don't generate enough money uh, for affordable deals to work. They need more cash uh, than we're often able to put, or there's a limited number of them that we can do each year. So right now we already have unused bond cap, so unfortunately, that doesn't feel yet. We're working on ways to lower the cost of that. We're working on ways to bring in more resources to make more of those projects work, including uh, there's a there's a system in New York, for instance, in which they provide a tax abatement for developers to include a portion of their units as affordable. And that's a way that they're able to use more of their bond cap. So that's something that we're exploring as well at the state level. It's early, right? This administration's been here for three months. Um, and we're still in the process of the figuring out of how we do those things. It's just our commitment is real and it's there. So
0: it's painful to you to have to say to the people who are pushing for this, "Sorry, we have a higher priority, which is getting our fiscal
1: house in order." This is my push too. I mean, this is more I know, it know must this be is, hard. To, this so is, what are you going to tell them? Well, we're, it's it's not a going to tell them. We've been in conversation, right? These are, these are groups I've been in conversation with for years in my, you know, former work coming into the transition. We've been in conversation about this reality. We just spoke on the phone earlier this week with some folks about, you know, here's the evolving reality. The problem is this is evolving as we speak. And, um, and we're sitting down together to figure out what we can do. In the Does any, do you have any other revenue
0: ideas that could go for this purpose? It's early. We're still working on all of that. Can you toss out a few? Do you have any
1: ideas? Not yet. It's too much of a changing landscape in terms of what we uh, citywide what problem we're going to need to solve and what other things coming from other sources may be available to solve our bigger fiscal challenge. And so with all of those unknowns, it's hard to say yet. So
0: short of that, there are other things you can do, like, for example, strengthening the Affordable Requirements Ordinance, which mandates that developers do more. What are you proposing
1: in that area? Right. So the Affordable Requirements Ordinance is, um, is Chicago's inclusionary housing tool, right? What it's, does
0: it say now and what are you thinking about?
1: Well, what it says now is that if, if a developer is building a market rate residential development and they need something from the city, if they need city land, city money, or a zoning change, then or in, exchange, yeah, anything. in yeah. exchange, we expect um, affordable units. How much? Uh, right Can... now, it's 10% unless you're using city money, in which case it's 20%. Okay. How much should it be? Well, here's the thing. Um, there's a very, very different schools of thought about this. Some people, if you think about this tool, you could say this is a tool that's biggest purpose is desegregation because it's being generated in high income parts of the city. So we should use this tool to maximize the most units on site as possible. There are others who argue you know what? This is a great source of money if we maximize the fees that developers pay instead, and then we can use it across the whole city in places that are disinvested. We can use it to subsidize other programs like the low-income housing trust fund. Uh, so these are all the masters that the ARO has tried to serve over the years. I think it's really time to take a step back and say, what do we think is the is the role that this tool, among many tools that we have has to best play. And I I think it's important just to stress, because we talk about the ARO a lot, and I have heard passionate arguments across the spectrum I just gave you many times a day about how this needs to change. I think two things are important. One, um, there's, by definition, inclusionary housing is a portion of a project. It's never going to be the biggest. This is never going to be a big unit production tool the way that tax credits, for instance, are. But the other thing is, I think process really matters. And so if I am, or me and my team, are sitting on the 10th floor of City Hall, generating policy proposals on what to do, then we're doing it wrong. I think what we're planning to do is instead roll out a process where we are meeting with and working through these questions with the most impacted populations, that we're looking at data disaggregated by race, and we come forward with a thoughtful solution my policy director is supposed to be starting, uh, next month. I'm thrilled about that. And under, as that person gets up to speed, then our plan is to roll out this work together, um, starting later this year. Well, people are, are expecting you to raise
0: the bar and to require more units to be built on site and to raise the percentage. Uh, are you not going to do that?
1: I can't answer that yet. If I answered that, that would be me short circuiting the process of actually sitting down and looking at the data, looking at what our goals are, looking at what communities need.
0: But what are you going to do about aldermen, and we've seen this in the city council, who say, not in my neighborhood, I don't want that, and they make up all kinds of other reasons about overcrowded schools and things, and they don't want affordable housing. Uh, the aldermanic prerogative the mayor has taken away on licensing and permitting. She's threatened to do the same on zoning, but that requires a vote of the city council. How, how are you going to deal with the
1: aldermen who don't want it? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward. You set up a system in which people can't say no to affordable housing for reasons that aren't based in fact. And I do want to broaden that out because it's broader than aldermen, right? Um, aldermen serve at the pleasure of their constituents. And if constituents are demanding that we maintain our segregation, then that's largely what they will feel compelled to deliver. So I think this is pretty fundamental. Um, either we believe that every community needs to contribute to the city's affordable housing needs, or we believe it's optional. What and do you we, believe? Well, if we believe it's optional, then we are saying we're fine with perpetuating the segregation that we've created. That's not what this mayor ran on. It's not what she won on decisively in all 50 wards. So we need to chart a very different path here. And, um, and you that is, for me, that's a, that's quite an honor to, to be able to be on the side of how do we figure out
0: how to do that. And so that involves taking this power away from the alderman. Well, what it involves
1: is saying, Uh, We value the input of communities. We value the input of aldermen who are closest uh, to their community. It becomes part of the evaluation process. But if we are in the business, which I think we need to be, of establishing a citywide vision for affordable housing, then we have broader criteria that we are measuring developments and proposals against. And we're looking at, you know, where do we have affordable housing? Where do we not? What populations are we better meeting the needs of versus not. And we're making decisions based on that criteria. And that really changes the focus of um, how we make decisions. So do you think the
0: vote will be close when she moves to strip all the men of their prerogative over zoning so that you can get this done? I have no idea how that, will, uh, how that will play out. When will it happen? When's she going to take this on?
1: You know, we are still, as departments, we are still working through the enacting of the executive order. That's the other one, the so one the, that she took away with
0: permitting and licensing. But the, the one that's going to really be the fight is the zoning.
1: We will see how that plays out. But we, it's going to happen. And it has to happen. That's, I mean, we will see how, that's that's being led by the mayor's office, and we will see how um, how and when that moves forward. Do
0: we need rent control? There's a movement to do that. Do you believe we should?
1: So the thing, here's, here's the way that my team, we've been asking ourselves over the last two months, really is, uh, the first question is to say, what problem are we trying to solve? Right? In this case... Um, I take very seriously the concerns that rent control advocates are trying to solve for, which is um, rapidly rising rents or taxes and, and then a subsequent displacement of longtime residents. That's a really serious and important problem to solve for. What we're looking at is what are the range of ways to do that? And we're looking at a host of things, including um, you know, stronger protections against evictions, um, enacting the Just Housing Amendment that was passed at the county level, which provides some protections for people with uh, criminal records. Things like um, we we ran a, a program for longtime homeowners around the 606 to enable them to stay in their homes. We've got a land trust that allows people to homeowners to opt into the trust in exchange for dramatically lowered property taxes. And that's a way to allow for longtime people to stay. So that's the whole range of, of things that we're looking at. And and so rent control, you're not for it. Rent control could be one of the things that we uh, engage in understanding across the range of tenant protections that we that we need to enact. I don't know where we stand on that yet. Do you know where you personally stand? Where I stand is we need to do a policy Procedure. We need to do a process that really helps us. Is there danger in it? Is there danger in it? Is there are there
0: warning flags? Or at the early stages of doing, of looking into all of those measures? Some of the things that the alderman talked about and is in the transition report. Uh, allowing coach houses and accessory de- dwelling units and new construction and rehab. There was talk of, uh, introducing, uh, accessory dwelling units ordinance that allows for a legal basement and garden units. Are there th- uh, tiny homes and coach houses? What of those ideas are you looking at? So
1: we, um, you know, we are very interested in figuring out how we create uh, how we make it easier to create more kinds of density across communities this is you know what i like to call kind of small density right we're allowing we're making it easier we're making it legal for people to actually use their coach houses for a rental unit or their legalize their basement or their attic and in the case of new construction you know what what's exciting to see we, uh, neighborhood housing services just did a design competition and one of the runner-ups had a new construction um, model of an affordable home with a coach house. And I, I'm also excited about seeing how we can influence this in new products that are built out if we're able to legalize the creation of another unit.
0: So are you looking at any of that allowing this and changing the zoning ordinance
1: to do that? We're very supportive of that and we are looking at the best ways to enact that. The urban Land Institute is doing is just starting a whole initiative of looking at accessory dwelling units and we'd like to learn from them and with them, but there's there's steps that we um, as a city are working toward taking. Ram Emanuel talked about tiny homes That's in the that would be in the basket of things of how are ways that we can creatively address um, the need for units and um, and get at, You know, ways to get at affordability that don't involve waiting in line for low income tax credits or waiting in line for housing choice vouchers, which are both of which are heavily oversubscribed. So
0: will the city start a pilot, for example? It's one of the things that we'll look at. Okay. And some of the aldermen at your confirmation hearing talked about requiring family sized affordable
1: units. Are you looking at that? So that's something we really need to um, address based on the data. We certainly know that uh, when you look at, for instance, ARO units, we tend to see those coming at the smaller end, studios and one bedrooms, et cetera. We also know, though, in conversations with the Chicago Housing Authority, what I've learned from them is that uh, their average family household size has shrunk considerably, so there people are having fewer children. 2.1, right? I think, was their average household size, and their longest um, waiting list is for one-bedroom units. So, oh. um, I think we need to look at that on a community by community basis, and and really have a good understanding of of what's needed at a local level. What about ensuring that
0: developers build more on-site units affordable?
1: sure and that goes back to yeah. the that goes back to our aro process right and saying okay, yeah. that because we're a city that has enacted and maintained uh, incredibly high levels of racial and economic segregation what are the steps that we need to take to proactively push against that certainly having more affordable units on site is part of that and one of the things i'd like to explore too is how we get more of those units available to lower even lower income um, people, because as we talked about earlier, if they're all going to to the higher end of low income populations, then we're not meeting our full need. Saving disappearing three flats.
0: What do Mm. you do with
1: that? Right. Um, So this is a concern I hear a lot about. In fact, right after this, uh, I'm jumping on the L to go meet with a community group and their leaders. Um, who, one of the main things on our agenda is to talk about the loss of two to four flats that were, you know, sort of naturally occurring affordable. There was no subsidy on them, but they had been affordable. And now we're in a space where some of them may be being demolished for a new single family home. Some of them may simply be being deconverted. Uh, some of them may just be seeing incredible increases in rents. So that's a, it's a major, um, it's a major concern because you're dealing with the private market, not, you know, not a city owned land or or city owned, uh, city subsidized buildings. So it's something I'm very, very f- focused on. Is there on anything figuring you can do out. about it? Well, there's things that community groups have done in the past. So for instance, um, a community group um, during the, you know, foreclosure crisis, worked closely uh, with lenders to get a bunch of Fannie Mae owned homes, acquire them, and assure that they would not be sold to the highest bidder, but instead would be held affordably. Um, How we do that with many, many different private owners is another question. And it's something we've really got to spend some time on.
0: All right. You studied in Milan for your master's. Take us out in Italian. Say something great that sounds terrific. (laughs) E' stato un piacere, Fran. Ci vediamo presto. What does that mean? Uh, It was a pleasure, Fran. We'll see you soon. All right. Arrivederci. Arrivederci. (laughs) Ciao. And we'll see you all next week.